Okay, so we are continuing with our series, The Journey to the Cross, and Julian is going to come and speak to us in a moment, but the verses that Julian is going to be speaking from today are going to come up on the screen, and I'm going to read them before he comes to speak to us. So we're looking at Luke 22, verses 1 to 46, and this is where Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves. Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. 
He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this may, must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Hello, everybody. It's good to see you today. Thank you for joining us online. Let me just bring my notes up. Well, that was a big portion of scripture, but we wanted to read it this morning so that you can get a feel of the tension and the atmosphere and the moments that Jesus was experiencing and entering into as we build up to this evening where Jesus is arrested, sent on trial, and crucified. And so, there's too much in that scripture for us to unpack in great detail, but I wanted to uh, point out to us this morning the contrast between the intimacy of the private place and the agony of the public place. We see two scenarios here in this portion of scripture. We see the private place of the upper room and we see the public place of the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's look at the private place for the first one. Jesus, it says in that passage of Scripture, eagerly desired to have it, the Passover meal with his disciples. It was the last thing he was going to do with them before he was arrested, crucified, put on trial, and the culmination of his ministry was executed on earth. And we see that Jesus so wanted to have this intimate time with the disciples that he organized it secretly, privately, so that nothing would be interrupted. We see that he'd gone ahead to prepare for this Last Supper experience. He said to his disciples, when you go into the city, speaking of Jerusalem, you will, a man will meet you carrying a water jar. Follow him. Go to the house that he is leading you to. Ask the owner, where is the guest room that is prepared for the disciples and the master to eat the supper? Now, what's unusual about this instruction is that it was code. It was a secret message. It was very unusual for a man to be carrying a water jar on their head at this particular season, at this particular time. This was usually down to the women. They would put the water jars. It was a woman's task in Jesus' day. And so for them to walk into a busy city and see a man wearing a water jar and Jesus giving instructions to follow him, 
it was a part of a secret plan so that those who wanted to arrest him, those who wanted to kill him, those who wanted to sabotage his ministry and journey wouldn't be able to because Jesus had particularly planned this supper with his disciples in a way that it couldn't be interrupted. So they went to the house and they asked the master, <coughs> excuse me, no names given. Didn't, Jesus' name wasn't mentioned. The master's of the house wasn't mentioned. And it was a clandestine secret operation. The disciples went in, they prepared the room, and at some point that evening, Jesus turned up. Why didn't Jesus want this situation and this moment to be interrupted? It was a very special time. It's because he was beginning to prepare his disciples for the horrendous ordeal that he was going to go through and the horrendous ordeal that they were going to go through. And he prepared them uh, in a few simple ways. First of all, he demonstrated that no matter what they were going to go through, no matter how hard it was going to be for them, no how much they thought their world and their dreams were going to fall apart in a moment, Jesus loved them. As you look at the same passage or the same portion of Scripture in the Gospel of John, it says, this is how much Jesus showed he loved his disciples. Taking a towel, he wrapped it around his waist and he washed their feet. He put into practice uh, a, a, a menial task that only the lowest of servants in a household would do. And he lowered himself to this menial task to demonstrate that he would go to any degree to care and to serve um, his disciples and his friends that he loved. And he was telling his disciples that no matter what happens now, I want you to know that I love you. And it's a wonderful thing that there are times in our own journey in life where things can go wrong. Our dreams can fail. The things that we long for don't work out as we hoped. Our world can be torn apart. We hope for so much, but it seems to go all wrong. That's what the disciples will experience. But one thing we can be assured of from this passage of Scripture, that even if everything goes wrong, it is not a statement that God doesn't love you. God loves you in the good times. He loves you in the bad times. He loves you in the horrendous times. And he's still working out his purpose. And he was preparing his disciples with the foundation of his love that would carry them through the most difficult of times and prepare their hearts to be restored and get back on track when Jesus is resurrected and it all begins to make sense again. But right now, they were going into a season of bleakness and darkness where everything would be confusing and nothing would make sense to them. Then he also told them, you've seen me love you, now you must love one another. He gave them the communion that was a prophetic symbolic sign of the death and the resurrection of Jesus so that after they'd gone through this horrendous experience, it would help them make sense of it all. It was like a prophecy in action. And he also warned them that they were going to betray him and forsake him. Jesus would betray him and the disciples would forsake him. And he told them in advance so they would, they knew 
that even though that they were at their worst, even though that they let Jesus down and they run away and they denied him and they were gripped with fear and they didn't stand by him, Jesus still loved them. Jesus still had a purpose for them. Jesus could restore them. And it wasn't all over for them. And he told them these things in advance, that they would have hope and courage and know that there was a way back. And they would come to a place where they understand that even though it seemed disaster in human eyes, in the mind of God, he was working out his amazing, mysterious plan to bring salvation to the world. Now, that was a very intimate and private setting. Now, this is in contrast to what happens next. After the supper is finished, it says that Jesus got up and he went out to a public place deliberately. He was in the private place because he wanted to prepare his disciples. And it was so important he didn't want anything to sabotage it or anybody to interrupt it. But now the time was come that he was going to be publicly arrested, publicly put on trial, publicly crucified, and risen from the dead. And so it wasn't secret anymore. It wasn't clandestine. And we know this because it says Jesus went out as usual. What an interesting phrase that is. He went out as usual. And he went out as usual, and it says his disciples followed him, and on reaching the place... And when they, Luke records reaching the place, he's using that language to communicate that this was a well-known, established place of visitation for Jesus. He went out as usual. This was his pattern to go to Gethsemane. It was his pattern to go to this particular place, maybe for prayer. And in going out as usual to the place that everybody would recognize, Luke was saying that here was a pattern that could easily be followed. It's like Jesus was putting a trail out so that he could be followed, so that Judas and the armed forces could find him and arrest him with ease, and the plan of God in this moment in time could begin to be rolled out. Jesus was positioning himself to be arrested, to be found, and he was following through the plan of God meticulously. Now, in this, in the private place of the Last Supper, we see Jesus preparing his disciples for the ordeal that they were going to go through. In the public place, we see Jesus mostly preparing his own heart for the ordeal that he was going to go through. It says, he went a stone's throw away in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed. And as Sean pointed out last week, Jesus prayed alone in a private place um, at the time of the major developments and decisions and the things he was going to go through. At his baptism, when the Holy Spirit fell upon him, he says, as he prayed, the Holy Spirit fell. When he was choosing his disciples, it says, he went up all night and prayed and then brought the disciples to him and appointed them apostles. It says when he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration where his face and his body and his clothes became gleaming like brilliant, bright light. It says that he was praying in that moment. And Jesus also was urging his disciples to pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation in this particular trial, in this particular hour. Now, what form of temptation was he encouraging to pray that they may be able to resist it? It wasn't the denial of Jesus or the running away or forsaking him. 
Jesus had said to Peter, you will deny me three times. That was, that was established. Jesus wasn't going to then ask him to pray that he wouldn't do it. Jesus declared he would. It was a part of the plan being rolled out. It says everybody would forsake him. That was a part of Jesus' plan that he would be forsaken, that he was going to go through the every human suffering from personal betrayal to personal forsaking from his friends to physical and spiritual anguish and challenge. So the temptation wasn't that they would not deny him. No, the temptation that Jesus was encouraging him to pray about is that they would not forsake the will of God and the purpose of God for their life, having gone through such a difficult and traumatic experience. That they wouldn't give up on God's mission for them. They wouldn't let go of God and his will. You see, Peter was very vulnerable to this. There was one occasion when Jesus explained to his disciples that he was going to be arrested. And Peter said, no, Lord, never. And Jesus had to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of man in mind. Uh, you don't have the things of God in mind, but you have the things of man in mind. And on another occasion, um, as we read in this passage of Scripture, uh, when Jesus is arrested later on, uh, Jesus, uh, Peter took out a sword and cut off one of the high priest's servant's ear, trying to resist the arrest. But the arrest was a part of the plan of God. And after the disciples were, Jesus was resurrected and the disciples were in confusion, it says that G uh, Peter and a number of his friends went back to their day job. They went back fishing. And we even read that Thomas, after the resurrection, said, I will never believe he's resurrected unless I see the wounds in his hands and his side. There was a defiance there. And so the disciples were in danger of not actually following through on the purposes of God once Jesus was resurrected because of the difficult challenge and trial and distress and bewilderment and mystery and confusion that they were experiencing. And this can be a temptation for any one of us that we go through hard times, we go through difficult times. There are times when things don't work out as we hoped in our, in our lives, whether it's personally or close friends or family or circumstance and dreams and hopes become dashed, we become confused. We think, I thought it was going to work out great, but it seems to be all going wrong. And it's so tempting to let go of God and the will of God and the purpose of God and fail to see that God can use it all to bring about a great purpose if we hang on in there and we don't let go. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, pray that you don't fall into temptation, he's praying that they will have this strength of heart and mind and spirit that despite everything Firing against them, they wouldn't let go of God and his purposes. And this is a great lesson for us as well. That we need to pray that God will strengthen us to be able to continue with the will of God. Even though it might be brilliant and exciting and full of joy sometimes. Or even though it might demand some trial and hardship. Even though we might have a clarity and a vision that is razor sharp. Or even there are times when we might be confused and bewildered and have no clue what's going on. But God does. And he says, hang on to me. Hang on to my will. And we'll see the greater purposes of God worked out. And this doesn't come by 
human willpower alone, but it comes with the help of God that we draw on through prayer. So Jesus says to his disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And next we see Jesus now putting his advice into practice where he goes, a stone throws away, and he begins to pray for himself. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus here is praying about his alignment to the Father's will. He's not for one moment trying to get out of the Father's will or asking the Father to change his mind. He's established firmly in his own heart that he will do the will of God. But he is praying that he may continue to be assured, discern, and know the will of God in this particular circumstance that he may continue to do it with his whole heart and being. If you are willing, he says, you can take this cup from me, for you can do all things, yet, he says, your will be done. He's established that he will do the will of God, but he's just taking a rain check on whether or not what he's about to do is the will of God for him. He's taken it by faith. He's been believing it up to this time. He's declaring it's the will of God. But just before he commits to the point of no return that will have a devastating effect on his life, the lives of others, he's just taking a rain check to discern and know again afresh that he's bang on track with the will of God. You see, we have to understand that Jesus in his humanity as a human being had to take the will of God and the cross and the suffering and all that he did as being the will of God by faith, just like you and I have to discern and know the will of God by faith. You see, Jesus, although he is God, he lived as a human being on our behalf, showing us how a man and a woman can have a relationship with God in the power of the Holy Spirit, hear from God, do the will of God, be empowered by God, make choices under God by faith. It's all by faith. It says the righteous live by faith. There was no more righteous than Jesus. And Abraham, who's the father of our faith, he became righteous by believing that God would give him a son, even though he was past the age of being able to have one. And Jesus executed the will of God and discerned the will of God and was obedient to the will of God by faith. And that faith and that revelation and understanding came through prayer and the study of Scripture and listening to God. But he had to hold on to it by faith. And now he was going to go through a deep, deep trial. And by faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing on what he understood of his, himself through the revelation of Scripture, he had to continue in faith, in the most challenging of circumstances. So here he is. He's saying, by faith, Lord, I know this is your will. I'm not asking to get out of it, but I'm just pressing in that I may be, have this will of God that I'm discerning and knowing and taking by faith, established at the forefront of my thinking. And he's, as, as I say, he's almost like taking a rain check before he goes through the point of no return. 
And next we see then Jesus continuing to pray, not only that he may be strengthened in the will of God, established in it, but that he may be strengthened to do the will of God because it would demand so much of him. Look, even before he's arrested, Jesus, it says of Jesus, he began to become sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to him, then he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me, he said to his disciples. It says he was in agony of soul to the point of death. There was something going on in his heart and mind and soul and spirit that was so overwhelming that it caused a soul agony that was weakening him and exhausting him. And in that weakness and in the stress and in the pressure of it, it says he earnestly prayed and then he began to sweat, as it were, drops of blood. And this is, happens to the human body when we're under so much physical and emotional duress that our body can break down and we can, as it were, begin to sweat through the pores of our skin or skin or blood can break through through the pores of our skin. What was so troubling about the ordeal that Jesus was going to go through? What was it about what he was going to go through that was so agonizing? It says, my, he says, my soul is overwhelmed to death. What was it about this will of God? Well, we know that he went through terrible, terrible physical suffering with the scourging and with the crucifixion and with the beatings. But I would suggest that that alone was not the thing that brought his soul to be overwhelmed to the point of death. Many criminals under Roman law were scourged and crucified. And it was a terrible and barbaric and dreadfully cruel and torturous experience. But I would suggest there was something else in addition to that that caused Jesus to be overwhelmed in his soul, in his mind, in his spirit to the point of death. And it was the cup that he was about to drink of. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. That's checking in. Is this really what you want me to do? Because this is so dreadful. This is so, so beyond any human imagination what you want me to do here. If you're willing, you can take it. But nevertheless, I've settled it. If it's your will, as I discern it is, I will go with your will. Your will be done. I've established that. What was this cup? The cup was three things. It was the cup of all the sin of the world being poured into Jesus' body. All the sin of the world from the time the first man and woman walked the face of the earth to the time that Jesus returns. Every sin, every individual sin of every human being, every national sin, every corporate sin, every injustice, sins that you and I have committed that we've let ourselves down, let alone let others and God down, sins of nations and groups, 
the most horrendous sins that we wouldn't even allow our imaginations to go there. Sins that we all know about in the history books from Nazi Germany to nations of genocide. Things that we read in our papers and think, how could that ever happen? Think of all the sins, known, unknown, secret, the intolerable sins. Think, think of your sins, my sins, every single sin being poured into the righteous, pure person of Jesus Christ. It says on the cross that he, knew no, he who knew no sin became sin. It says Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. This was the cup that he was drinking. He was drinking in the sin of the world. So that we could know forgiveness and every person in the world could have the opportunity to turn and repent and receive his forgiveness. So, so that God loved the whole world. It says God loved the whole world. Every person in the world from the beginning of the end of it that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Well, if every person in the world would have a chance whether to receive mercy, whether they receive it or not, every person's sin in the world had to be poured into Jesus. And this was the cup. Can you imagine the distress, the guilt, the despair, the torment, the pain, the soul anguish? Can you imagine what he had to bear as he drank into his body the sin of the world. But the cup didn't stop there. That wasn't just what he had to drink in that dreadful cup. He had to drink in God's justice for the sin of the world. You see, God is a loving God and he's a good God. And because he's a loving God and he's a good God... He executes justice because justice is good. Can you imagine a situation where somebody you knew was dreadfully treated by somebody's wrongdoing, somebody you loved and cared for, and they were hurt and wounded, and it was a criminal offense, so to speak, and they were taken before the judge, and the judge says, oh, it's no big deal, I'll let you off. Can you imagine the distress that you would feel or the loved ones would feel as the injustice of that? Because we know that justice is a good thing and it just says and establishes, no, this is not right and there's a consequence for it. You cannot treat people like that. And our own wrongdoing and our own sin not only damage our own lives, but they damage other people's lives and they damage the world that we live in. And God, who is good and God is loving, is moved out of that love and that goodness to say, no, we cannot carry on living like this. And so all of, his, all of God's justice, the Father's justice, was bore down in weight upon Jesus' body on the cross when he was crucified. This was the cup. So it's not just the cup of the sin of the world. But he had to drink the cup of God's Justice, the penalty, the consequence of God upon the cross so that we could have the opportunity of turning from that wrongdoing and receiving his forgiveness. This was a dreadful cup to drink on. We often hear this phrase, if somebody stands before the court of law, they say, and found guilty, they receive the full weight of the law. Jesus was going to drink the cup where the full weight of God's justice for all the sin of the world. This is why 
he was in anguish of soul. This is why he, as he envisaged what he was about to drink of, he said, my soul is overwhelmed to death. But that wasn't all. There was a third element to this cup. And it was the displeasure of God for sin. He, God loves every individual. He loves every person. But, oh my goodness, he does not love the sin that wounds, the, wind, the sin that kills, the sin that destroys, the sin that damages. Whether it's our mental health, emotional health, relationships, the world that we live in, everything that is good. You don't need me to explain the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. It's the selfishness, it's the hatred, it's the greed, it's the self-centeredness that tears and destroys not only our own lives, but so many other people's lives. And he loves us nevertheless. But that power of sin, the power of it, he hates and he has a displeasure for. And when Jesus was on the cross, in bodily form, he felt the displeasure of God for sin, the weight of God's justice, and he felt the intolerable effect of sin of the world in his body. This is so beyond any human imagination or any individual to be able to bear. And that's why he was in great anguish of soul. And in such distress, this soul agony, spiritual suffering beyond, beyond human comprehension. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was praying about him submitting and executing the will of God, was experiencing the dread of drinking this cup. But it says the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. Mental, emotional, spiritual anguish, torment, guilt, and despair beyond comprehension. And Jesus went through it all. And he settled in his heart that he would. Now Luke records in this passage of scripture that Sean read an incident that none of the other writers place. And it says this, after he was perspiring sweats of blood through the anxiety and the torment of this, it says an angel came to strengthen him. This is a mystery. How can an angel strengthen the Son of God, the one who is God himself? But it wasn't talking about strengthening God in his divinity. It was about strengthening Jesus here, who is God in his humanity. His body, through this anguish and sorrow and despair, had become so weakened that he needed to be strengthened in his body so that he may go through this dreadful ordeal. The gospel writer Luke often comments more than any other writer in the New Testament about the visitation of angels. And we see that when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, angels came to minister to him. Why? Because he was weak. And now they came, this angel came again. Why? Because he was weak. And the disciples were experiencing a little bit of this weakness, only a touch in their own selves. Because if they observed the sorrow of Jesus, it says that they couldn't stay awake. You see, sorrow 
like grief, has a physical effect on you. It can cause a physical pain. Now, my father lost his wife very recently, as many of you will know, of 67 years. And there's many occasions when I sit down in the front room with him and he said, Julian, I'm feeling so sad, it hurts. And he would explain how he's, he's actually physically feeling a pain in his chest. And often when I would come in and visit him, I would see him sleeping there more often than usual. And people who are going and experiencing grief and the sorrow of grief, it's not unusual for them to feel it in their body physically and be absolutely so exhausted by that grief and that sorrow that they sleep more than usual. And the disciples, it says, were sorrowful because they were seeing Jesus' sorrow and it was affecting them physically and they couldn't stay awake. But what Jesus was going through was off the charts because what he was going to do for us to be our substitute that we may know the forgiveness and the mercy and the freedom of God was off the charts. He said three times he prayed. It could have been up to three hours, but it was intense and earnest. And he had to pray that he would be strengthened he had to pray that he would be reassured. He had to pray that he may execute in the power of the Holy Spirit by faith and obedience the will of God, which was to drink this dreadful cup for you and me. And it was his practice. There will be times in your life and my life where we may be challenge to do something in following the purposes of God that we might rather not do. And many times that we want to do it and it's wonderful and exciting. There might be times, like Jesus, that we might not want to. How can we get to that place where we know that we will still hold on to the will of God, that we won't abandon through the hard times, that we'll be prepared to not only live in joy for him, but suffer for him if it was necessary? It is practicing prayer like Jesus did. You see, this experience of Jesus in the Gethsemane wasn't the first time he prayed like this. As I conclude and finish, there's this amazing scripture in Hebrews 5 verse 7, and it says this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because his reverent submission. This is an astonishing act of faith on Jesus' behalf. He knew through studying scripture and prayer and looking at all the pro pro prophetic predictions, he'd come to the place by the power of the Holy Spirit that he was the Son of God and he was the Messiah and he was going to suffer and be crucified. And from understanding through the revelation of the Holy Spirit and, and scripture, that not only would he be crucified for the sins of the world and all I've been talking about, but on the third day God would raise him from the dead. Can you imagine how much faith that demanded? I mean, faith walking on water is one thing. Faith to feed the 5,000 is, wow, that's amazing. Faith to raise somebody from the dead. Lazarus, come out, and he did. But can you imagine the faith that it took of Jesus to say, I'm going to willingly be crucified and put to death and before that happens, by faith, I'm going to believe you're going to raise me from the dead. Because when he was dead, he couldn't exercise that faith. He had to do it beforehand. Can you imagine? 
What faith that demanded. And Jesus prayed that God would raise him from the dead. And the father heard him and did. And so this Garden of Gethsemane experience was not a one-time wonder in one sense, although the intensity was unique. But the practice of prayer, and it's an example for us, pray that you and I may know and continually be strengthened in the will of God that we know. Pray that whenever we go through a hard time or a tough time, we will not abandon God and his will for our life, even though it might be confusing and we don't understand. Pray that we'll have the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual strength to do the will of God. This passage of Scripture has highlighted the necessity of prayer concerning these things for me. And I hope it will do the same for you. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for Jesus, his life, his example, his obedience to you, Father. I want to thank you that whilst he is fully divine, he chose to show us what it was to live as a spiritual human man by faith in you. I want to thank you for his prayer life. I want to thank you that he went through all these experiences knowing that we would and he did it for us so that we could have an example to follow. And I pray that through the encouragement of Scripture and Jesus' example that the Holy Spirit will put within us a desire and a power to pray. To pray to know and be strengthened in our hearts in your will. To pray that even in the darkest hour, the most difficult times, we will not be tempted to abandon your will. To pray that you will strengthen us in mind and heart, soul and spirit, that we may do your will. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.